0: You guys sent us to plant a church and it's been an incredible journey. Um, I'm humbled to serve as one of the pastors at Vintage Grace. It's fun to see some of our college students attending here at at RCC. Um, And we really are. We are RCC NorCal. That's who we are. Um, We are a joy-filled community of faith by God's grace through your investment. Sending is in our DNA. And so you guys sent us. Um, I don't think it's just our DNA as a couple being sent by RCC. It's in our Biblical DNA. The father loves the world so much that he what? He sends the son. The son when he leaves us says, hey, don't freak out. I'm leaving. I'm going to go prepare a place. It's good for you that I'm leaving. I'm going to send my spirit. You guys believe in the Holy Spirit around here? Okay. I'm just making sure. We're going to talk a lot about him. And the spirit fills us in such a way that he sends us to go be the living proof of loving God in all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? El Dorado Hills, Sacramento, Your Belinda, like this is the ends of the earth to that first century church. Amen. Now remember, amen just means I agree and I'm not asleep, pastor. Okay. Amen. It's too early, you're early in the morning. So sending is in our DNA. I love Sundays. It's my favorite day of the week. But practically speaking, Sunday is 0.7% of the week. 0.75% if I preach too long, which is pretty normal. The majority of the week is spent where? It's spent Monday through Friday. And so we as a church, we planted with this vision of being a sending church. It was in our DNA. We didn't want to plant a church in El Dorado Hills. We wanted to be a church that planted churches, that planted churches. And by God's grace, we have a church plant in Oakland. We have a church plant in Sacramento. Um, we have an expanded family of churches that we get to invest in. It's this sending DNA that we got from you. And so thank you. That, that's who we were. That's where we are And so again, I'm thankful every Sunday we gather, we do four S's every Sunday. We sing songs, we tell stories, we have a sermon, and then we have a sending. Are you getting the idea of the words that we care about at Vintage Grace, right? Send. We are the sent ones. Now I share this as just some background because I I would love to if you'd give me the permission to share one of my lower moments as a pastor. Can I share that right now? I mean, I'm going to do it whether you give me permission or not. So... So early at church, I asked all of our launch team. We had a launch team about 50% believers, 50% yet to believe. And I asked all of them to set their alarms and pray at 2.50 in the afternoon. And what were we praying for? Anybody know? We were praying that 250 people would show up on a Sunday. We moved to a church, to a community. We didn't know if anyone was going to show up. There were four and a half people in our church when we moved. My son, my younger son, and then my wife was pregnant. So like guaranteed church growth, Right. And so as we moved, we said, hey, would you pray with us as a team? Maybe I even asked RCC to pray. I don't know. Would you pray at 250 that that God would bring 250 people to our church on Sunday morning? Because when you're new to an area, you don't know if anyone's going to show up. And by God's grace, he did. We had about 300 people at our first church gathering. And as we grew steadily, we changed our alarm from 250 to 350, from 350 to 450. And it was really at that moment that I felt very convicted Here I was, the the church planter that didn't want to be Sunday focused, and I had asked my church to pray a Sunday focused prayer. Now, I'm not against Sunday morning attendance. Again, it's my favorite day of the week. We get to gather and go vertical. We get to equip the saints to go do the work of the ministry. But everything about Sunday for me is not about seating capacity but sending capacity. How do we be a church of sent ones? Because if you read the book which we read all the time. It's in our DNA at RCC. It's in our DNA at Vintage Grace. We read the book. We trust the book. The book sends us. The Holy Spirit fills us and he sends us to go be that living proof of a loving God. So I had to go to my church and say, guys, I, I think I messed you up. Like we're just starting. By the way, we have a lot of issues at Vintage Grace and all of them start with me. We're sinners saved by grace, saints who release sin. That's my definition of a pastor. My only difference between you and me is that I went to seminary and have school debt. I'm a professional sinner saved by grace. You're a normal sinner saved by grace. But we're sent ones. We're not described anywhere in the New Testament. Do you recognize that? Not described as sinners who we are. We're described as sent ones. Apostles, missionaries, disciples that make... And So I went to my church I said, guys, we have said the wrong prayer, I'm so sorry. So we changed our prayer. Instead of being Sunday focused, we made it about the 42K. There's 42,108 people in El Dorado Hills where we live. Now it's growing because a lot of people are leaving SoCal and we're usually the last stop on the way to Idaho. That's where we live. No joke, 77 families we've prayed over in the last 12 months that have left us for Idaho or Montana. But we don't lose them. You lose something when you don't know where they are. We haven't lost the people, we've sent them to Idaho. Because that's who we are. It's in our DNA where we're sent ones. And so I told our church we're going to change our prayer. In fact, hey, maybe you remember this. We didn't pray at, at 2.50 or 3.50 or 4.50. Now we prayed at 11.42. You're like, you want 1,142 people at your church? I'm like, no, no, no. That's the population of our city. 42,108 seconds in every day is at 11.42 a.m. And so we pray at 11.42 And then finally, someone came and said, well, Drew, I don't live in El Dorado Hills. I travel to church. I come from Placerville or Sacramento. I'm like, great, we're going to plant churches there. Let us know. And then we started to realize that the harvest is plentiful. That that the text actually tells us that it's not even about your city. It was never about your Belinda. It's not about El Dorado Hills. It's about the ends of the earth. But it's not just about my little town, but that the harvest is much, much bigger than that. And so we changed our prayer alarms from 1142 to 938. Now, again, that is a Bible verse. In Matthew chapter 938, here's where the text we're going to be at today. If you have your Bibles, pull them out. Look at your devices. It's on the screen as well. Here's where this prayer comes from. It comes from Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, where Jesus is training his disciples. And Jesus went through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel and the kingdom, healing disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed, they were helpless, they were sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out kingdom laborers into his harvest, since that's been our prayer alarm for the last seven years. Lord, would you use us as a church to not be a gathering station, but a sending station? Would you use us as the people of God to gather on Sunday? And so really, my favorite part at every one of our gatherings, I love hearing stories of OST. I love singing songs of God's grace. I love walking through the text about his glory and his goodness and his faithfulness. But the best part of our gatherings as a church is that we scatter I don't know how many senior pastors tell you that. I'm just glad you came so we can kick you out. Because the sending matters. Why? Because the harvest is what, church? Oh, dear. I'll I'll start to put the answers on the screen in yellow for you, okay? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so, again, as we look at the text, we have a a definition at RCC of what a disciple is. We call it R-cubed. Our one is deepening with God, our two is life changing with other believers, and our three is engaging with the yet to believe. This is your definition of a disciple, this is our definition of a disciple. A disciple is someone that lives our cube. Does this look familiar? This is what we talked about every Sunday at RCC. It's what we talk about every Sunday at Vintage Grace. This is who we are. I think this is half the battle. Way too many churches in America don't know what a disciple is. This is what we talked about last September when I came down to preach. Nothing new to you guys, is what we talk about every day. Who we are, we're followers of Jesus. We're disciples. We want to be like Christ, deepening with the Father, engaging with the yet to believe, and actually in a communitas together. And so here's what the text says today. Here's my summary statement. We do a summary statement every Sunday. If all you leave is this, here it is. The mission Christ gave us as his disciples, those of us who live are cubed. Those of us who find more joy in Jesus was to go out into the harvest. The harvest is plentiful and prayer is the primary work that we are given to accomplish the task at hand. May we as his saints cry out to the Lord of the harvest to send kingdom laborers for his glory and our good. Amen. That's our focus today. Now let me pray and let's get after it. Father God, would you speak to us? Would you bind my words from anything that are not of you and instead spirit, would you inspire, encourage, support us? and equip us to be the set ones you've already called us to be. As your sons and your daughters, we pray that you would send kingdom laborers for your glory and the good of our city and our neighborhoods, we pray, Lord Jesus, come. And everybody said, amen. All right, so we are going to walk through the text. Now, it's kind of weird being a guest preacher, extended family member coming back to preach, because you're in John, not in Matthew. So I'd encourage you, go read Matthew 9 this week. It's an incredible chapter. I want to highlight something before we get to our verses because context matters. And so in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is walking around. He's making disciples. In fact, if you read Matthew 28, the term there, go and make disciples, it's just as you're going. Jesus is going. That's what he's doing in Matthew 9. He's building the kingdom. He's inviting people into relationship with him. And so chapter 9 starts with, and getting into the boat he crossed over. For us, it would be like getting into the Uber. You just got into the car. It's just a part of his everyday rhythm, his nine to five. It's part of what he does. And those hours, he gets in the boat and he goes. In chapter 9, verse 9, this is actually the verse where he calls Matthew to be a disciple. He's just walking at the storefront. You ever walked by a store before? You guys know those are kingdom moments? That's what chapter 9, verse 9 says. Just as he passed on from there, he sees this man sitting at a storefront. Chapter 9, 18. While he was saying these things, you ever had a conversation with somebody before? These are kingdom moments. The harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. Jesus is showing us what laboring looks like. 927, Jesus passed on from there. You're all going to leave here at some point. As we leave here, these are kingdom moments, and as they were going, behold, Jesus is walking. He's talking. He's having conversations. He's in and out of the Uber. He's not wearing a mask, but he's living for the kingdom of God. And here's the question is, the spirit is moving. The question is, are we paying attention? And if you're like me, the answer is probably not enough. So can we just like take a quick chill pill. The reality is every one of us is in process trying to faithfully follow Jesus. And I don't think Jesus just came to die for our faith. That's good news, right? But he also came to show us how to live out our faith. He came to model, because I think way too often vision is caught, it's not taught. I'm not against teaching, it matters. But vision's caught. And so Jesus is on a three-year camping trip with his disciples, teaching them about kingdom living teaching about what it looks like to be surrendered to the Father, to be led by the Spirit. And so as he's walking, as he's talking, as he's going, guess who's moving that whole time? The Spirit of God. He's modeling for us what it means to be a man after God's own heart to faithfully follow the Spirit. To be honest, that's why I set my alarm at 9:38 is cuz if you're like me, by 9:38 you've forgotten what matters most in life. You've been frantically getting the kids ready for school, you've had a couple of meetings, we set our alarms. In fact, I ask our church to pray this prayer God, what are you inviting me into today? We put it on our cell phones, we put it on our cars. Why? Because I forget. Because I'm dense. Because I get distracted by fantasy baseball. Like, I forgot to update my roster this morning. I get distracted by so many things that don't matter, and then I actually forget what does. What does matter is the harvest is plentiful, labors are few. And so here's what we get Jesus is just going, he's talking, he's teaching, and he's walking. He's saying, "Father, what are you inviting me into today?" Now, please hear me. This is what God wants for us, not from us. I grew up in the church. RCC God used it in incredible ways to help me unpack my baggage from growing up in the church to find more joy in Jesus, not out of duty and obligation, but out of joy and genuinely wanting to follow him. But this is what God wants for me, not from me. God doesn't actually need you because the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Don't misread that and say, I better be a good laborer. Pay attention here. This is what God wants for you to be a kingdom laborer. So here, here's what the text says. Jesus went throughout all the cities proclaiming and teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, at Vintage Grace, we use a definition of pain and suffering that we actually got from a guy by the name of Dan Jones. You guys know Dan Jones. So, again, maybe you've seen this before. You'll start to notice I draw a lot of pictures at Vintage Grace, and most of them come from RCC. Again, I don't have any new ideas. We're just continuing to live out the vision that we were a part of here in Your Belinda in El Dorado Hills, Your Belinda North. And so, Jesus is teaching, and He's addressing certain gaps in people's life. Our definition of suffering from Dan is the gap between your present state and your desired state. Who here has suffering in their life? Anybody? If your hand's not up, that's because you're insecure. Anybody insecure out there? Just raise your hand. If your hand's not raised, you know why? Because you're insecure. Okay? Every one of us has gaps. We walked in here with gaps. Health, wealth, family, lack of family, too much family. Like everyone else has a gap. I joke with my wife all the time. Like she has a permanent gap between the present state of my abs and her desired state of my abs. It's never going to be what she wants it to be. Sorry, babe, not sorry. Suffering is a gift from God. Gaps in our life are a gift from God. That's what James tells us, that's what Jesus tells us. But does Jesus care about the gaps? Well, he cares enough to go do something about it, right? Here's what the text says. He goes throughout as he's going. He's getting in the Uber, he's getting in the boats, he's teaching, he's walking by the storefront. As he's going, he's healing every disease and affliction, He's taking them from their present state to their desired state. He's addressing the gap. Now, here's the problem with the gap. It's a problem with my prayer life. My prayer life is often, God, here's where I am. Here's where I want to be. Get me out of the gap. But God often allows gaps in our life because in the gap, I think we actually get God. That in the gaps of our life, we actually get what we really need. So don't misunderstand me. God cares about the needs of your life. He cares about the brokenness. But I remember one of the first sermons I preached here at RCC was about the, the message over the miracle. The miracle matters. You're seeing that in the gospel of John. But at the end of every miracle, what happens? The gospel. So pay attention to the hierarchy of the text. Jesus steps into the gap, but here's what he's really after. He's after teaching the gospel. The the healing is what sets up the most important thing, not to get you out of the gap, but to meet God in the midst of the gap. And so he's teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of what? Of the kingdom. Now, Now, the gospel is a term that I love. Do you guys love the gospel? Three of you. Okay, I'll take it. It's fine. I love the gospel. But I'm afraid it's this sexy term that we don't necessarily know what it is. Just like disciple, which we defined back in September, what is the gospel? So so here's my definition of what the gospel is. That at the beginning of your life, that's what this arrow, that's what this line stands for. Nine months before you were born, your mom and dad got together, they had this activity, and then you were born. Make sense? You good with that, Braden Payton? That happened nine months before you were born. Okay. So this thing happened, and then you were born. Every day of your life, you know what you're doing? You're pursuing your joy. No one ever had to convince me to pursue my joy when I woke up in the morning. You've heard that sermon, right? His name is Todd. It's who we are. God designed us to be happy. Don't miss this. He designed us to be happy. And and so this is the truth of every single human that's alive. They were born, and they're on this, what I believe to be an eternal journey, pursuing their greatest joy. So that's the foundation of the gospel. In the gospel, we see that the Father created the world. That there was this perfect interdependence between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They weren't bored. They had perfect community in the Trinity before the foundation of time. And in the beginning, God did what? He created. In the garden, he created Adam and Eve. After that, he created you and me and everybody in between. He came down. And so we use lots of images and shapes at Vintage Grace because of something that we call gospel fluency I want us to know the gospel because Peter says always be ready to give an account for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. So this is the gospel that God came down. That in the garden, God created you and me. And so we regularly, we use a stool at Vintage Grace because you know I like sermon props, right? So this is just a permanent one. Sits on the stage every Sunday and it represents the throne of our heart. That inside every human, there's a metaphorical throne inside your heart. It's got vacancy for one person. In the beginning, God sat on the throne of Adam and Eve's heart. Life was good. They were in the garden. They trusted the father. They treasured the father. They were in relationship with the father. They had everything they ever needed, everything they ever dreamt of. Life was good. It's the first joy-filled community of faith. They're in the garden. Father, son, spirit, three in one with Adam and Eve, with his people. They laughed. They walked. They talked. They enjoyed God together. That's a good statement. We should use that around here. That's the garden. Now, it lasted for how long was life good? Two chapters that's it. Two chapters in, and what happens in the garden? Well, in Genesis chapter three, sin enters the world. Metaphorically speaking, it was Adam and Eve walking over to the Father and pushing him off the throne of his heart. It was Adam saying, No, Father, I don't trust you. No, I actually don't treasure you. I don't believe that your better is better. I'd like to try out sitting in that seat, Father. We rejected the Father. Adam and Eve did that. You and me did that. Everyone in between has rejected God. Our definition of sin at Vintage is simply this. It's settling for lesser joys. Because remember that arrow. We're just doing what we think is going to actually make us happy. And so don't miss this. That word, settling for lesser joys, please hear me. That doesn't come close to describing how offensive sin is. Sin is offensive to a holy and righteous God. There's a cost to our sin. It separates us from the Father. It cast us out of the garden. It took us away from the good life, which we've been studying in the book of John. It it separated us from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit three in one, where we no longer trust and treasure Jesus, the way in which he designed us to. Now, right now, all of humanity... From the garden until today, all of humanity now is on an endless pursuit to find their greatest joy. They're trying sex, drugs, rock and roll. That's what Alice Cooper said. They're trying money, health, wealth, spirituality. They're trying to put all sorts of things on the throne of their heart with the hope that maybe that will make me happy. And yet the reality is apart from my Jesus, they will never be happy. They will constantly be pursuing, and that's the curse of sin. That's the reality of the garden. And so the gathering of Jews and all of other people are pursuing that, but God. It's our favorite words in the Bible. But man, as sin entered the world, but God, Jesus comes to the world. Now, please pay attention to this. In America, we say we own something in one of two ways. We either design it and create it, or what? We buy it and we purchase it. Jesus did both for you and me. He designed us, he created us in the garden in relation with him, we rejected him and the cross is what brings us back to him. He designs us and creates us and he brings us back to him And so now we have an opportunity to be a part of this joy-filled community of faith. He lives the perfect life that we don't. He dies the heinous death that we deserve to die. And he makes a way when there was no other way. This is the message that Jesus is proclaiming all across the towns and the villages as he's walking and talking. He's doing miracles, but he's proclaiming this message of the gospel. Guys, you're not going to be happy until you get in the right relationship with my father. That's only going to happen through my life and through my death. And then he starts what we would call at Vintage Grace, this ongoing spiritual transformation journey. We're still pursuing our greatest joy, but now as believers, we believe that's only found in Jesus. And so that's who we are as the church. In fact, that's what we believe at Vintage Grace, that life is short, that hell is hot, that he's coming back someday. You guys believe that Jesus is coming back, amen? So we've got work to do. There's a reality right now, this arrow going this way, we're just continuing to pursue our greatest joy. We just believe that's found in Jesus. We want any and everybody to find that is, that's what it means to be a joyful community of faith. We were dead in our sin, but God makes us alive. And that makes us what, church? Happy. Does it make anybody else happy? Okay, so now we got four. We had two, now we got four. But Jesus only had 11, so I'll take four this morning. You know what I'm saying? We are a joy-filled community of faith. What makes us joy-filled? We were dead, but God makes us alive, and that makes us? Now there's a bunch of us. We're a joy-filled community of faith, of sent ones that go into the harvest, that go into the brokenness where there's gaps and afflictions of every kind, and he's coming back. Now, is that going to be a good day for those of us who trust and treasure Jesus when he comes back? Is anyone else longing for that day more and more? Like every day I wake up, my body's a little more broken. My heart beats a little slower. Like every day I'm like, huh, it's ready. Not suicidal, but I can't wait for heaven. Can't wait for that day. But again, for those who don't trust and treasure Jesus, is Jesus' second coming a good day? No, it's not. No, pay attention to the text. He's going around healing every disease and affliction. And as he's doing that, he sees, pay attention to that word, we're going to come back to it later. He sees the crowds and he had what? Compassion. His heart's breaking. Why? Because they're sitting on the throne of their hearts. Jesus sees them and God loves us so much that I believe he taps us on the shoulder and says, Psst, drop. You're in my seat. That's compassion if we want people to be happier tomorrow than they are today. It's compassion. I have Yet to Believe buddies. They know that they're on my pray watch list. That just means I'm praying and I'm watching for an opportunity for them to get off the throne of their hearts. And I have one buddy, I was like, yeah, he came to church. I love it when Yet to Believe come to church because church for us is a training of the saints to go be missionaries. Two times a year I talk to the Yet to Believe, Christmas and Easter. Otherwise, we're training disciples to go be missionaries. That's what we do every Sunday. And so I have a Yet to Believe buddy. He comes to church at Christmas and Easter. He's like, hey, I'm on your pray watch list. I know. And I was like, cool, it's not weird for me. I just want you happier tomorrow than you are today. He's like, yeah, you'd be a jerk if you didn't want me to love Jesus. You're right. Either that or I wouldn't actually believe that there's more joy in Jesus. Jesus finds compassion on the crowds, not just because of the gap that they're in. Because the gap that they're in is actually what? It's an R1 gap. It's a heart issue. It's not a healing issue of ailments. It's not a marriage issue of divorce. It's not a financial issue of stewardship. Every gap that we have, they're real gaps. They really matter. But you know what they really are? They're heart issues, every one of them. Here's what the text says. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because why? They were harassed and helpless. But pay attention to what he says. They're helpless like a sheep without a shepherd, like a king without a throne. They took the seed of the father's heart. That they took his seat. And so it's a master issue. That's really what we see here in the text today. We see Jesus giving us a mission, but it's all about serving the master. Compassion at Vintage Grace, I give our people a lot of homework, so I'd encourage you to write this down. Compassion is a major theme of the Old Testament. Go read Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, 1 Samuel 23, verse 21, Psalm 103, 13, Isaiah 49, 15, and 54, 8, Lamentations 4, 10, Micah 6, 8, and Colossians 3:12. That was the last text I taught when I was here. It's a hard issue, it's a master issue. It's sheep without a shepherd. That's the issue. And so the gaps in our life, I believe, is God's way at addressing the biggest issue, which is the throne of our heart. That's what we see in the text today. Now, yet the Father is leading through the Spirit, the Son. Remember, the Son doesn't do anything that the Father doesn't tell him to do. Remember, he's modeling for us how to live in the kingdom. He's walking and talking. He's led by the Spirit. When the Spirit says, stop and talk, what does Jesus do? He stops and he talks. He calls Peter. He prays and he watches. That's what it says. When he saw, he was watching the crowd, and the Spirit of God is leading him. I believe we see that throughout the text. And he loves the world. So what is God inviting you into? He's inviting you to love the world. One of my great concerns for the Church of America the last two years in particular is that we've kind of missed the boat a little bit. We've started fighting with the world instead of fighting for the world. That's a huge difference. What do we care about, RCC? We care about the throne of the heart. Do we care about the gaps in people's lives? Absolutely. Do we need to step into the gaps? Absolutely. But make sure you're fighting the right fight. You're fighting for eternity, and you're never fighting with the world. So if you're fighting with the world, can you stop? Jesus really loves the world. I don't want to fight against the thing that Jesus loves. I want to fight for the world. There's a huge difference. Do you understand the difference there? If not, send me an email, toddc@richfieldcc.org. at richfieldcc.org. I'd love to help out. But we must recognize that we fight for the world. If we don't have compassion for the world, if we're angry Christians, then we've missed the gospel. The gospel is we were dead Christians in our sin, but God made us alive. That makes us happy. There's no angry Christians. We're happy Christians that, again, on so many levels, we don't yell at the world because they don't know what they're missing because they're dead in their sin. We have compassion for the world. We love the world, we engage in the world, we fight for the world, not with it. Do we recognize that we live in a broken world? Buffalo is just one example. COVID, race, it's all a result of sin. Don't miss this, these aren't just gap issues. Way too often, I've talked to believers and I've traveled and I've trained and I've taught and, and way too often we're like, well, if only we could solve the racial issue in the world. Jesus is the only one that's gonna solve that issue, amen? I'm not saying we don't fight for the world, but pay attention to what we're fighting for. And what we're fighting with. We must engage in the kingdom of God for kingdom purposes. And he tells us as the master how to engage. Therefore he said to the Lord, to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Now again, the word disciple, we've already defined it here. It's someone that lives our cube. You're in John. You're going to get there eventually, John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you hold to my teaching are one, you are my disciples. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you what? Free. Free from having fights that don't matter and free from loving in the kingdom of God. R2, John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you once love one another just as so I have loved you, you will love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not good theology. I think it matters. But love. R3 is John chapter 15, verse 8. By this my fathers glorified that you bear fruit and so prove to be my disciples Guys, here's the truth of the matter as we see through the gospel of John, through the gospel of Matthew, through the whole book. We're called to be followers of him. We're called to get off the throne of our heart to find our greatest joy in him. And he says to his disciples, those who live are cubed. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Please don't make that true of you. Is this not a heartbreaking text? The harvest is plentiful. What he's saying is the gaps in people's lives are everywhere. In the gaps, it's our greatest opportunity for people to meet God. Because they're looking for what will make them happy. That's what they're looking for. And again, if we could just introduce them to Jesus, then I thing think it's the only way they're going to be actually happy. And so I pray that's not true of you at RCC. I pray that's not true of us at Vintage Grace. But when Jesus says something, I don't argue with Jesus because he's God. As we very clearly says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Please don't make that true of you. That's the mission, to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, and invite other people to do the same. The harvest is plentiful. So what are we supposed to do about this eternal, tragic reality of the world that we live in? Because the truth is there's many people on my sports team that are looking for joy in all the wrong places. There's many people that are in my neighborhood that are on my cul-de-sac that come to my, my practice or my office or my Zoom calls, whatever that looks like for you, that are looking for joy in all our places. And here's what I love. Jesus tells us the answer. He says, the harvest is plentiful, laborers are few. It's kind of depressing if you're a pastor and a church planter. And I think you guys are all pastors. But don't be depressed. He says, no, therefore, what are you going to do about it? What's the assignment? Therefore, pray earnestly. Now, I thank you. So many of you prayed earnestly for my son when he was fighting cancer. Earnestly, diligently, faithfully. What does earnest look like? Well, it looks like putting stickers on your phone. It looks like setting alarms. It looks like trying not to be distracted by the rubbish of this world and instead of fighting for the world instead of with it. That's what praying earnestly. It doesn't mean like pray harder. That's not what he says. He says, make sure that I sit on the throne of your heart. And if I do, you're going to love the things that I love. And I love the world. I love the lost. I came to seek and to save the lost. He says, so pray earnestly, Pray regularly. That's the mission. Set your alarms and pray and pray and pray and pray. It was a few years ago we had a a local ministry that saw what God was doing through some of the people at Vintage Grace. And they said, Drew, would you write an article on evangelism? Would you just tell us what you do? The church keeps growing and people that were lost become found and people are living as mission. Would you just write an article and give us like the to-dos of evangelism? Would you give us some steps, some best practices I said, sure, I'd love to. I'd love to do that. They prepaid me, and when that happens, then you get to write whatever you want because you've already been paid, right? No? Okay, I thought that was funny, but oh well. (laughs) So I said, honestly, guys, you've already paid me. I said, the problem is that you're asking me to write an article of what to do instead of who to follow, I said, see, evangelism, way too often, I've tried to tell people, I don't convince anybody to go tell people about Jesus. I try to introduce people to Jesus. When they meet Jesus, what are they going to do? They're going to go tell them about Jesus. You saw the woman at the well a couple weeks ago, right? Far from God, she meets Jesus, and what does she do? She goes and tells somebody. Jesus didn't say, okay, ma'am, now what we're going to do is I'm going to give you the four spiritual laws, which I love, by the way, and we're going to go pass out these tracts, No, she meets Jesus, she engages with R1, and then she goes and finds anyone that will listen to her and says, guys, have you met Jesus? He told me everything I've ever done, and he's going to make you happy. Now, we don't know if she ever actually came to faith, but I think others came to faith because of her, because when you meet Jesus, you can't leave the same. So I don't try to encourage people and motivate them. So instead, I wrote a whole article about the Golden State Warriors. That's back when they were really good, and then they had some bad years. No one has to convince me to talk about the Warriors. Why? Because I love the Warriors. No one has to convince me to talk about my kids. No one has to convince me to talk about my church or my family or my friends. It comes out naturally. And it's always with an invitation to them being happier tomorrow than they are today. So I wrote this whole article on evangelism essentially saying let's not write articles on evangelism. Let's instead have people fall in love with Jesus and follow him. And then they're going to evangelize the world. Amen. They didn't publish the article. (laughs) But I got paid and I kept my money because I worked on it. Guys, this is the problem with the Church of America. We're looking for what to do. And the actual irony in all of this is Jesus told us what to do. This is the reality. The harvest is plentiful. Guys, does that fire anybody else up? There's people in your neighborhood that if they die today, they go to hell apart from Jesus. But they know you and they see Jesus in you. Does that get anyone else excited? Guys, we have the opportunity to change people's lives. But again, pay attention to what he says the assignment is. Follow Jesus. Two things we tell people. Follow Jesus and then just invite other people to do the same. It's not about you. So part of the problem with America is we just miss like one letter in a word and it changes everything. We want to know the how. The reality is we let's focus on the who. If you look at the word how, if you just take that, that letter from the back and shove it to the front, you start focusing on who matters. Because guys, here's the reality. In the kingdom of God, our calling is to look up, not out. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Our Father who what art in heaven. Now, again, for them, I think there's this belief that if I look up, I'm gonna see God. Is the world depressing? Yes, we should have compassion on the broken world. We look up and we say, but God is sovereign. But God is good all the time. And therefore, we can trust that his better is better. We can trust in the brokenness. He's coming someday to redeem and reconcile the lost. Somebody say amen. This is good news. And so again, we don't look out and get depressed. We look up. We focus on the who. Here's what Jesus says. The harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to who? God. God. We can't save people. That's good news because if you could, you'd fail at it. So we pray to the one who does. We pray to Jesus. We say, Father, Son, Spirit, three in one. We pray to the Lord of the harvest in this way. Would you send kingdom laborers? Notice he doesn't even say, pray that there be more Christians. What's he say? He says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send kingdom laborers. If you're a kingdom laborer, that means you're actually in the kingdom. If you're doing the work of the kingdom, that means he sits on the throne of your heart and you're doing that because prayer is the work. That's the mission of God. And so what are the implications from the text today? I've got three. And the first one is this, that we at RCC are a part of what I would call a communitas. Again, we like the word community. We have community centers, community pools. Community means a common unity. A community is who you root for, like the warriors. You root for them. A communitas is who you fight for. There's a huge difference there. Church, we're not called to just be a joy-filled community. We're called to be a joy-filled communitas. A communitas has a common master that he sits on the throne of our hearts. A communitas has a common mission to go into the harvest and make disciples. So Richfield Community Church, I'm not saying you should change your name, but I'm wondering, should we start thinking of ourselves as a communitas? Common master, common mission, Sent ones by the Father, inspired and led by the Spirit, modeled by the Son to go win the one. And so how do we do that? Three things. The first one is we pray. I'm going to invite you to pull out your cell phones. I know most pastors say, put those away, focus. Ken, pull out your phone. Jean-Ann, Art, thank you. Would you set an alarm for 938? It's changed our church. It's changed our perspective. Our alarms go off, first service is my favorite as the preacher because I preach a bunch at our church. The alarms go off, I would love nothing more than Todd to be preaching and be fully distracted next week. He's not here, so he's probably not even listening right now. Those alarms go off at 9.38, usually in the introduction of the sermon. Wait, why are we here? Common master, common mission. We pray. My alarm goes off all the time. Sometimes when I'm with Yet to Believe, what's that? Oh, I pray every day that people would be happier tomorrow than they are today. I pray that God would send kingdom laborers on my soccer team, on my baseball team, in my neighborhood. I pray that you would find more joy, not just tomorrow, but for an eternity of tomorrows. I pray that the kingdom would come and his will would be done. Would you start praying with me as a church that God would send kingdom laborers to your Belinda? Amen? Remember, amen means I agree. So I got one person that agrees with me. Set your alarm and pray. Pray. Say, God, what would it be like if we started to view our Sunday gatherings as huddles to be sent ones, not just a gathering, but actually preparing us for the scattering? That's one. Number two, would we watch? See, what happens when you set your alarm, your alarm goes off and you're like, oh, what am I supposed to be doing? It's not about the Zoom call. It's not about the class I'm teaching. It's not about the work I'm doing. All of that is sacred space. All of those are kingdom moments. Would you be people that pray and watch? At Vintage Grace, we have a list. We call it our pray watch list. Just the people we're praying for. When our alarm goes off, we just pray, Lord, would you make so-and-so a kingdom laborer? We start to see that the kingdom of God is all around us. That coaching soccer is sacred work. It's not secular work. It's sacred work. So that they might see the joy that we have in Jesus. You watch for those opportunities. Now, again, please hear me. When I say watch, I'm not even saying preach. I want to invite the ushers forward right now. I'm going to give you a gift on behalf of Vintage Grace. You have to take it. You get a car. You get a car. You No, you don't get a car. You get a box of brownies. And so we as a church, we do this twice. We do this at Christmas and at Easter. We give our church a missional tool. It's a missional tool. And so now it's brownies. So Brian and Todd are coming forward. And so I'm going to ask... uh, Hayden, would you mind jumping up since you've done this for me before at Vintage? Would you grab some boxes and pass them out? And then Carson, would you come over here and help your dad? He always needs help, so help him. I want every family to get a box of brownies. So just start passing them out, one per family. And on the box, this is my gift from Vintage Grace to you as my joy-filled communitas in Southern California. Every family that take one, now on the top, I want you to notice, it says living proof. Take it, make it, share it. Love your neighbor with actions, no words required. I have some instructions here. And nobody not take it. That's like refusing a gift from Jesus. I'm not Jesus, but he's giving you brownies. I don't want you to preach the gospel to your neighbors. Please hear me. I don't want you to invite your friends to RCC. That's not the point of these brownies. The point of these brownies is to get to know your neighbors. The point is, and it doesn't be your neighbor. Maybe it's going to be someone at work. Maybe it's going to be someone in your neighborhood. Maybe it's going to be someone on your soccer team. Maybe it's someone in your class. You guys are like, I don't even have an oven at school. How am I going to make brownies? Go to someone else's house and make the brownies. Would you pray over the brownies as you make them? Would you pray? Because here's my hope. It's not that you're sharing the gospel. It's not even that you're inviting them to church. You're praying and watching for a step. A step to point them to Jesus. A step to invite them in. You're saying, Lord, be my vision. Here's my value as a missionary, because I'm a missionary first and foremost. I'm a son of God and a sent one. Here's my ask of you. Would you live in such a way, I don't answer questions for people that they don't ask. I'm going to say that again in case you missed it. I don't answer questions for people they don't ask. Because if they don't ask, they don't care what the answer is. That's why. But I live in such a way that when the affliction happens... They ask me. Would you think about that for a moment? You're not giving them brownies to invite them to church. You're not giving them brownies to share the gospel. You're living in such a way that when the crap hits the fan, which it's going to happen. Why? Because gaps are a part of being human. The gaps are everywhere. You live in such a way that when that happens, they ask you the question. And so that's my ask of you, church. Would we recognize that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? few? may that not be true of you. May you be a laborer, and it can start in as simple as making a batch of brownies. Go to your neighbor, go to your coworker and say, hey, I thought of you this week. If they say, why would you think, don't say, well, this guy from Sacramento, he come and he told me that I have to make brownies. Knock it off. Why would you make brownies? I pray because the spirit of God stirred in me to stir in you to do something with your faith. Because life is short and hell is hot. Because talk is cheap, but the harvest is plentiful, but labors are few. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we come before you, we ask that you would do a work at RCC. You would create in us a vision for your kingdom, that we saw you, Jesus, model, living out the gospel. Not just preaching, proclaiming, stepping into the gap. And so right now, Spirit of God, I pray that you would reveal to us the people that are in our lives. Right now, Spirit, I pray that you would give us faces and names of our neighbors, of our sports teams. I think of those families that are coaching Little League right now. Would you help them to see that the, the kids on their team are kids that they can point to you, Jesus? That you are the author and perfecter of our faith. And so, right now, Jesus, I ask that you would be our vision, that you would be thou my vision, the, the Lord of my heart, that you sit on the throne of our heart, and that you would inspire us as set ones, as sons and daughters of the King, to be the living proof of you, our loving God. Spirit of God, speak. May we listen church, we're going to sing a song right now. I'm just going to ask you to stay seated, to keep praying through the song. If you know it, sing it. May he be the vision. May he be the Lord of our heart. May he give us a vision to be the set ones that he called us to be. Let's worship him right now.